Our theme for the Christmas this year is uh, the Island of Misfit Toys. And uh, is there anybody here who hasn't seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Came out in 1964. I don't think there's anybody who hadn't seen <laughs> the movie. Uh, it's funny, this, this year at Christmas I've been going back and watching a lot of the old classics and then unfortunately been watching some of the newer stuff that has come out. Uh, if you have young ones, maybe you've had to endure things like the My Little Pony Christmas, the Elf on the Shelf, and every other cartoon seems to have their Christmas special. And let's face it, the writing is awful. And if you don't have little kids, maybe you're dating somebody or have a wife who watches the Hallmark Channel. The writing is awful. I'm sorry, it just is. I'm sorry, you may love it, that's fine. But at the very least, can we agree that nothing on the Hallmark Channel or the cartoon channels come anywhere close to comparing with the absolute classics of Christmas, right? Yeah, can we agree? I mean, that's why once, I mean, Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer came out in 1964, yet I can still watch it today and be just as entertained. And one of the reasons why that is, is the writing in that, classic. I went back and watched it for the series with us doing I was like, all right, for work, I have to go watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> it, it's really odd sitting in your office watching a cartoon as people are, who are not on staff coming in and out going, okay, that's what pastors do all week. I thought you only worked one day a week, and now it's confirmed. But I'm sitting there watching it, and it was amazing to see how many of the elements of story are wrapped up in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Most movies, most good stories, will have one or two elements of the fairy tale or the fairy tale type themes or the story themes that we gravitate towards. In other words, there are things within your soul that when a movie maker puts that element into a story, you're immediately drawn in. And it's amazing how many of these different elements line up with us. Because I was reading sort of about all the different elements of stories that we love and then kind of laying that over, went back and rewatched it and was laying it over the, the the Rudolph show, or Rudolph movie, and, and just let me go through some of these. Um, we all have a, have a desire in life to escape death, and so we are drawn to movies that tell stories of somebody who escapes death. That's why we love it when somebody sort of jumps out of the building right before it blows up. We love when somebody escapes death because we long to escape death, right? Well, in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, there's multiple times where they escape death, where the abominable snowman comes at Rudolph and Hermie, and what's the other guy? Yukon Cornelius, see, y'all know the show. Uh, he comes at him, and he almost gets him multiple times. And then uh, the Abominable Snowman does go ahead and capture Rudolph's girlfriend, Clarice, uh, and, and, his, and his mama, and, his, and, his, and, they're, and they're there in the cave with the Abominable Snowman, and they, they escape death once again. And, and so it has these multiple times where the Abominable Snowman comes after them, but they escape death. Uh, there's something within our soul where we we, have, we long for that which is superhuman. Uh, we, we, have, we, we have moments where we wish that we literally could move mountains, where we wish we had powers like Obi-Wan Kenobi to just wave the hand over and say, these are not the droids you're looking for. That is not what my bill says, Verizon. We just wish that we could just <laughs> wave the hand and, <laughs> and customer service whatever that word means, representatives would just instantly sort of see things our way. We wish we had supernatural powers like that. And so when you watch a, a movie like Rudolph where, where reindeer can fly, uh, we, 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 we tap into that where the, the reindeer could fly and that Santa can go around the world all in, in one night. Uh, there's, there's a desire within each one of us to figure out who we are, 
what our calling is and be able to fulfill those dreams in life. Everybody has dreams and we long to have our dreams fulfilled and so we love stories and narratives about somebody who has a dream and they fulfill that dream, whether that dream is to make the football team uh, or whether that dream is to uh, become a world champion or whether that dream is to, I don't know, what's what term you want to do? What do you want to become? A dentist. Hermie wants to become a dentist. And so we, we are tapped into the fact that here he is. He's stuck at this dead-end job that he doesn't like, but he just wishes that he could become a dentist someday. And so we're right there along with Hermie going, man, I feel you, buddy. I don't like my job any more than you like your job. And I guess even being an elf wouldn't be all that fun if you don't want to make toys. And so we tap into that. It kind of connects with us at our soul. We, we love the underdog story because every one of us knows that we're not the favorite. There are very, there are very few times where we're the odds-on favorite to succeed or to accomplish something. And so in sports, we love when the underdog wins. Uh, we love seeing the Patriots lose last night, or at least most of us did. Uh, we, we love when the underdog comes out on top. And so there's those moments in the movie where, where little Rudolph takes his antlers and he goes right into the back of the abominable snowman and he, they take him on. And then Hermie and Yukon and Cornelius all together work together to try to take down this huge beast. And it's like a David and Goliath kind of story. We love those moments and that's in that story as well. Uh, we, we all have a desire for, for lasting love, for somebody who would love us in spite of all of our faults and all of our failures and would love us just as we are. And of course, that's at the heart of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer story is this concept of these misfit toys who are out there longing to be loved. And if only somebody could, there's got to be somebody out there who would, who would love, a, not a jack-in-the-box, but a, um, a Charlie-in-the-box, yeah, and for somebody who would love a polka dot elephant and all the other toys that are out there. Uh, there's got to be somebody who would want a, a, a bird that loves to swim. There's got to be somebody out there, and if only we could somehow find that connection somewhere, and of course that's in the movie as well. There's also a desire for good to triumph over evil, because it seems like everywhere we go, evil's coming for us. In this life, you will have trouble, and we have trouble after trouble after trouble, and so you've got this abominable snowman, and you just wish that this wouldn't be a problem anymore. And one of the beautiful parts of the story is the abominable snowman isn't just defeated, but he's converted. And he's there in Santa's workshop helping to make the toys. And maybe, just maybe, one of the toys that enters your house this year will have been made not just by an elf, but by the help of the abominable snowman. Uh, it's just, it, it, we love those stories. And so whenever we read books or we watch movies that tap into these sort of soul themes, these, these desires within our heart, we gravitate towards them. We'll, we'll pay money to watch them. We'll watch them again and again and again. And if movies have multiple of these elements simultaneously, they become blockbusters. They become all-time classics. And of course, the reason why Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has become an all-time classic is because it hits on all of those themes for us. But as much as we enjoy going to the movies or watching the old Christmas shows, there's a piece of us that once it's over, we know it's over, that that was make-believe, that, that was just in a, that was in a galaxy far, far away, that was once upon a time, that was some other day, some other time, and that there's the Marvel universe, and then there's the universe that we're living in, and we know it's not reality. Do we want it to be reality? Yes. We, we, we call oftentimes those things an escape from reality, right? Isn't that what a movie is? A good movie is just an escape from reality, and so we want to live in a world just, if, even if only for an hour or two, where all of those things and all of those elements happen, where people fulfill their dreams and they enjoy supernatural powers and good triumphs over evil. Uh, and right uh, really does uh, win in the end. We love those kind of things. But in the end, they're not real. 
So when we come to the Christmas story, it's interesting how many elements of these same kind of themes are found in the Christmas story, if you think about it. I mean, just the very fact, I mean, you know, we long for the supernatural, and so we have this story of God endowing uh, supernaturally uh, creating this child within Mary uh, that would be the God-man who would come to earth, that, that there really is a God who would come down to earth. There, there's the stories in there about uh, how God loves people unconditionally and all the different people who come into the manger scene are the outcasts. Last year we talked about how the shepherds weren't welcome in public society and yet there they are, welcomed right there and the angels come to the shepherd and invite them in. Uh, there's Herod who comes to try to, to kill the child, uh, like the abominable snowman comes in, they, they, Herod comes in to try to take out Jesus, and they flee off and they, they get away. There's just all these different elements and stories that we love, and it almost begins to read kind of like a fairy tale. And if you will, I mean, there's the Christmas story, and then there's the Christmas story, and every one of the Christmas stories center around this idea of believe, like the Polar Express, right? believe. Uh, uh, elf, you know, do they, do they believe in Santa or not? Because if you don't believe in Santa, then Christmas isn't going to happen. And it's all sort of geared towards trying to get you to believe something that a lot of people just don't think is true. And so that same element kind of comes into the Christmas story. And somehow or another, it kind of, they all sort of get put in the same category. And when Matthew begins to tell the story of Christmas in the story about Jesus, he intentionally doesn't begin it like a fairy tale would begin, once upon a time, or once there was a prince or princess or little boy or little girl or wherever it may be, or once there was. It doesn't begin it in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Which, side point, if it was that long ago, how do they have that much advanced futuristic technology? Sorry, just questions I sometimes wonder. I guess that galaxy is much more uh, intelligent than, than ours is. Um, things I, I wonder about as I'm watching the movies. Uh, but he doesn't begin it like any of those things. Rather, he begins it and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, what he's trying to say is, I'm telling you a story that's true. It's grounded in history. And so he takes two markers that universally most people would know, people that most people would recognize those names. So Abraham, he's the, considered the father of, our, uh, of faith. He's the father, the author of the three great religions uh, that have been throughout history and time, uh, whether it be Christianity or Judaism or Islam, all of them trace their lineage back to Abraham. And so he starts there with a universal figure that most people would know. Uh, he also goes to David. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard of David. Uh, if you've ever watched sports, I know you've heard of David because everybody loves an underdog story or we also call that a David versus... Goliath story, right? We all know David. And so he's coming out and saying, Abraham, you know Abraham's real, right? We, and we face trace their origin back to Abraham. David, you know that is a real historical character. I'm going to be telling you a story about Jesus, who is the descendant of David, who is the descendant of Abraham. He is grounding it in reality for us, that you might know this actually happened which sets it apart from every other religious type of book. Every other religious type of book is trying to tell you, here's how you ought to live to appease a deity that may or may not be out there. But it'd be best in your best interest to do this kind of thing. What Matthew is writing is what becomes known as a gospel. A gospel simply is a word that means good news. In other words, he's, I'm not writing you a how-to book or advice manual. 
I'm writing you the account of a story that actually happened. This is real. And this isn't about what you ought to do. This is about what has been done for you. This isn't about what you need to do to have a relationship with God. This is the news about what God has done to have a relationship with you, that God came down to meet you and me there in the manger. That's where the story begins. And it begins with this guy named Jesus who was born into the line of David and born into the line of Abraham. In, in the same way that if a king were to go fight a war, uh, if, he was, if, if the war had not been fought yet, he would first send out his advisors or his leaders to go and direct people on how to fight the battle. However, if the battle had already been won, he wouldn't be sending out the advisors, rather he'd be sending out the heralds, uh, the ones who would proclaim the news. The battle has been won. Here's what you can now expect. And, and the Gospels are written like the king who's already won the war, who is sending out his heralds or his messengers. Some of those messengers are angels. Some of those messengers are later called apostles. Matthew is one of them, who is now telling us the news of the battle that has been fought on our behalf, the triumph, over, the triumph of good over evil, the triumph of life over death, and it's telling us the news of what has happened. So he grounds it there in history. Uh, this is the genealogy of, Matthew, uh, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, one of the things about the story that, that uh, stood out to me is back when they were making the Nativity story, uh, it's, the, it's the movie that was made about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, what happened in Hollywood is when Mel Gibson went out to create, make the Passion of the Christ, Hollywood, of course, didn't support it. They didn't want anything a part of it because Hollywood has this idea that if you make a Christian film, that's just going to be an absolute flop. Gibson goes out, fine, I'll do it on my own, and I'll keep all the profits, too. Well, Hollywood saw that, and of course, greed always triumphs anything else in Hollywood, and so they're like, well, we're going to make some of those films too and get in on the money. So they go out and they make the Noah movie and they make the Exodus movie absolute flops, right? So then the idea of making the Nativity movie comes off. Well, maybe, you know, we need to go back to the Jesus story. Maybe that's what really the focus is. And so what would happen with each one of these movies, Hollywood producers will bring in pastors and biblical scholars to kind of get their input. They don't ever listen to them, but they just kind of want their, what they're hoping to do is to get their sort of rubber stamp of approval. Well, this happened with the nativity story. And so they brought in some pastors and they kind of laid out the story and they had discussions about the different elements of the Christmas story. You know, what do we have to put in? What do we, can we take out? You know, what can we sort of, you know, expound upon? Because, you know, the, quite frankly, all of the narratives in the scriptures are not detailed enough to make a movie out of without adding something there, right? You always, whenever they say this is based on true events, there's always a lot added in there. There's sometimes things taken away because it doesn't work in the story. Well, issue came up about the issue of the virgin birth. You know, do we have to put in there the virgin birth? The, the pastors were adamant. Yes, this is crucial to the story. The producers were pushing back and they said, well, you know, we really want to make a movie that can be universally accepted and universally enjoyed. And quite frankly, people love the baby story. They love the shepherds and they love the wise men and all the parts of the Christmas pageant. People go to the Christmas pageants all the time without, you know, a whole lot of detail about the virgin birth. We really have to put that in there because, let's face it, there's some people who just quite frankly don't believe it because that's kind of this part of the story that's a little far-fetched and a little hard to believe for a lot of people. And I know you Christians really believe that stuff, but a lot of others don't. And you know, we can't expect people just to come in there and sort of suspend belief and believe those kind of far-fetched things are true. Can't we just focus on, you know, like the Ricky Bobby part of it? Everybody loves the baby Jesus, right? A little eight-pound, everybody loves that part of the story. Let's just focus on that. The pastoral group, though, pushed back and said, no, let me just tell you right out. You can make whatever movie you want, but the Christian community 
will reject this, and we will lead the charge to reject this if you don't include this because this is foundational to the story. Well, in the midst of those discussions going back and forth, one of the pastors spoke up, and uh, this is pretty close to the quote that he gave them. He said, as they're talking about it, he goes, wait a minute, I thought you guys wanted to make a great film. You know, Hollywood does a really good job of making great films and creating films such that they allow the people who go into the theater to just suspend belief for just a little while while they're in the theater and allow our minds to consider the possibility of things like, oh, I don't know, that a radioactive spider could have bit a little boy. And now all of a sudden he is endowed with these spider-like abilities to be able to scale walls and shoot webs out of his hands and even believe that Tobey Maguire is a superhero. This is back when the first one came out. I don't want any spoilers. If you've already seen the movie, I'm intending to see the movie. Don't tell me what happens. He says, and we allow people, we, we, and, and you're able to present those things in such a way that they're, that they're believable enough that we can suspend belief, if you will, enough to enjoy the film and let our minds wonder. He says, so why not let people consider the possibility that there is a God that came down to earth? And present the, the supernatural elements of the story because after all, that would have to happen. If, if we're going to believe that God came to earth, there would have to be something supernatural about it. So why not include the supernatural elements of the story so believable that you allow people to, in your words, suspend belief and get caught up into the story? And then he said, perhaps the reason why you guys are so hung up about this Bible thing and makes you so nervous is because somewhere deep inside you recognize the fact that it might have actually actually really happened. They did include the virgin birth in the nativity. Quite a compelling argument though for it, huh? Like, I mean, think about it. Why would you include, or why would you make movies about men who can fly and shoot spider webs and have this Jedi mind trick type force and then somehow believe that it's too far-fetched that a virgin could conceive? Oh, it's because now you're talking about not, not, not superstition and not a Marvel universe. You're talking about our world. And clearly everybody knows the claim of Scripture is not that this is some sort of fairy tale, but rather this is the reality that all of the fairy tales that touch our soul are all based on. The message of the Bible is this is the reality of, of life beyond death. This is a story of the reality that there really is an unconditional love. This is a story of the reality that you were made with a purpose, that you were made by God. You are His workmanship. And he has a purpose and a plan for your life. I know the future I have for you, declares the Lord. Not to be an elf singing songs and making toys, but maybe it is to be a dentist. I know the future that I have for you and the things that I've prepared for you. And all of those stories are all based on this reality. Now, second thing about the way the Christmas story begins here with Matthew is, uh, Matthew then goes on to tell not just the story of those who are the highlights of Jesus' genealogy, on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at some of the misfits in that story as he goes to tell it. And the reason why he goes into this place is because when you go over to chapter 9, you hear a little bit more about Matthew's story. Uh, Matthew, if you don't know his backstory, you just think, oh, he's one of the apostles. He's one of the 12. I mean, if, I mean there are, there's us who are idiots trying to figure out how to have a relationship with God, and then there's the apostles. I mean, they are up there reigning on the 12 thrones with God. We read about that over in Revelation. I mean, these are the, the spiritual giants of the world. Matthew wants to remind you, that's not who I was when I met Jesus. As a matter of fact, every single one of you in this room, 
is much more qualified to have been one of the disciples than Matthew was. It's a true story. And that's what he wants you to know. And he'll tell you that at the very beginning of the gospel, then when he gets down to telling his story, he gives the context and the setting for it. If you go over to Matthew chapter 9, he tells a story about this time where uh, Jesus and the disciples are, are going along and they're teaching and they're in this room, this house that's so crowded that people can't get in to hear him. And there's some people who have a friend of theirs who's paralyzed and he can't walk. And so they bring him to the house hoping that maybe Jesus you know, would talk to him, touch him something, and they hear that he has the power to heal. And so they're doing everything they can to get him there. It's too crowded, they can't get in. And so they go up on the roof, they get a little creative, they open up the roof and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. And when that happens, the uh, first thing Jesus does, he looks at him and he says, you know, he sees the faith of his friends and the faith of this one that's been lowered in front of him. He says, your sins have been forgiven. And of course, the religious group in the crowd is not having it. They're, they're up in arms. Who is this who thinks that he can forgive sins? And Jesus looks at me and says, you know, you have an issue with that. You don't think I have the power to forgive sins. Uh, well, how about this? And he tells the guy to get up and walk. And sort of to prove that I have the power to forgive sins, I'll show you something, you know, that you can evidence the power that I have. And so this guy who's never walked or has been crippled for some time gets up and just walks out of there. Uh, and everybody's amazed. And so it's right after that that we pick up in the story. It says, as Jesus went on from there, it's kind of like as if, you know, that's where he was. He leaves there. He kind of goes into town after that and says he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, okay, tax collector booth, no big deal. You know, just somebody picking up the, the taxes. Well, in that day and time, uh, Rome was an occupying force. As you would imagine, the Israelites were not very happy about this occupying force. Uh, in there, nobody ever likes an occupying force. Uh, but more so, what Rome would do is they would want to have a, a financial benefit for everywhere that they occupied. And so what they would do to collect taxes, they would auction off, if you will, regions of the world that they controlled. And the aristocracy of Rome would bid on these regions and say, well, I could get you this much money out of that region. Somebody would say, I could get you this much money out of this region. And the goal was to get as much money as you possibly could without disturbing the peace. Because as we know in our own country, it costs a lot of money to occupy a country that doesn't want you there. It costs a lot of money to occupy a country where there's no peace in the country, right? That costs us a lot, a lot, a lot of money. It's always been the same. And so Rome wanted to get as much money out of an area as it could without having to send a military force there to subdue an uprising. And so that was kind of a delicate balance. And so they'd bid on it, and once somebody had bid on that, uh, they couldn't just go down there and collect it themselves. What they would do is they would go and hire people, locals, to collect the taxes for them. And so then they would find locals who would then bid on how much tax they could get out of it for the aristocracy. And then those locals, what they would do is if they felt as if they could get maybe a 20% tax out of the people, they'd bid uh, 25%. I could get 25%. Or they, they basically always bid higher than what they thought they could get. That way, whatever is the difference, that's what they keep for themselves. So I would charge you a 25% tax. I would keep 5%. I'd send 20% on to the guy that I'd commissioned it with. Now, you could imagine if one of your countrymen, somebody who is of your race or of your tribe, of your community, decided to sell out the whole community and upbid the tax rate for your city so that they could personally profit from it, how would you feel about this person? I mean, nobody likes anybody who's willing to raise taxes, right? Imagine if somebody purposely goes out and is raising taxes so that they can personally benefit from it. That's like the one no-no you can't get caught doing in politics. They all get away with it somehow, but if you get caught with it, we to this day don't like it. That's who Matthew was. 
in their vernacular, they would have groups of, of unmentionables. There was the sinners and the prostitutes. Tax collectors had their own category at the bottom of the scale. That's how much they were hated. And so he says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he told him, follow me. So here is Jesus, not just saying, hey, why don't we go hang out? He's literally saying, I want you to be one of my disciples. If you go back and see what he says to Peter and James and John, it's the same phrase, follow me. He's asking him, I want you to be one of my disciples. The most unlikely of all people at the most unlikely of time. It wasn't like as if Matthew had said, you know, this rabbi, this Jesus, he's been doing a lot of amazing stuff. He just healed this paralytic guy and he said he could forgive sins. Well, he's going to be coming this way. He's going to be coming through town. I better go clean my act up. I'm going to quit my job as a tax collector. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change everything about it so I can be good enough that when he gets here, I'll be ready for him. Kind of like how everybody's always wanting to shine everything up for Santa to walk in. That doesn't happen. While he was collecting taxes... Jesus shows up and meets him. Don't miss that. While he's doing the very thing that made him be so despised, while he was in the act of carrying out his greed in the community, while he was in the act of betraying his countrymen, that's where Jesus met him, at his worst, doing his worst, doing the very thing he was despised for. That's where Jesus met him. That's where Jesus invited him to come follow him. Um, and so it says, and so Matthew got up and followed him. Now, little thing in the story is, when Matthew comes to follow him, I think Jesus, they have this conversation, and in the same way that Jesus, when he met Zacchaeus, says, hey, I want to go to your house and eat dinner, this same thing happens with Matthew. He says, hey, I want to eat dinner at your place tonight. And so Matthew's like, well, great. Can I invite some friends? And Jesus is like, I thought you'd never ask. And so Matthew ends up inviting, if you're lost, who are the only people you know? Lost people. Right? Just like if you're in the Navy, you know Navy people. Some of you are saying, well, that's kind of the same thing. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the only people he knows, it says, are other tax collectors and sinners. Because that's the only people who would hang out with a tax collector like him. He didn't have any good friends to invite to, to hang out with Jesus. He just got all tax collector friends. And so he invites all of them over to come hang out with Jesus. And basically, like, this was amazing. The fact that there is a religious leader who is admired and loved and respected by the community who would actually even talk to a tax collector, much less want to have a relationship with them. That news spread, spread quickly. And so every tax collector and sinner in town wanted to come and meet this guy because the religious elite of that day wouldn't talk to him. And so sure enough, Jesus is there at the party and the religious folks hear about it. Church group, they come over and uh, they're looking in, trying to figure out what all's going on. Um, and uh, they said, why does your teacher in there eating with tax collectors and sinners? See how this is like a separate category, even worse than sinners, like a tax and, you know, sinner. Uh, why is he in there meeting with all, eating with all these? Well, Jesus hears all this, and he comes out uh, to address it. And he says, hey, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Uh, now, who's he, refer who's he calling the sick? Matthew and all his friends. Now, do you think they were bothered by being called the sick? No, at the end of the day, when you're lost from God, you know you're lost from God, right? You know, it's, it's, you may not, oh, you're going to call me a sinner? Well, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, sometimes I, I joke with you all about <sighs> your sins, let's just say that. <laughs> And you laugh along, like, you know, your favorite miracles and things like that that Jesus performed are always kind of predictable. Um, and so, some of you are just now getting that, that's fine. Uh, 
And so it's not the healthy doctor, but the sick. And then he says, you guys need to go and learn what this means. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, a couple of things I love about this. One is, Jesus is a trash-talking, sarcastic guy <laughs> by his nature, right? Here's a group of people who their ego and pride was all founded on the base, basis that they knew God's word, they had memorized. Actually, to be a Pharisee, to be considered a Pharisee, you actually had to memorize not just be familiar with, but memorize. In the same way that many of y'all can recite the lyrics of songs you haven't heard in 20 years, you can recite the statistics of your favorite teams, uh, you can almost, you, how many of y'all can watch a movie and almost verbatim, you're annoying because you can repeat line for line what's going on in the movie? These people studied the word of God in the same way that you study your sports teams, your music, or your movies. And they had it memorized and know it as good as you know any of those things. And so Jesus would say things like, have you guys not even read the Bible to people who pride themselves like they memorized it? And he says to them here, he says, why don't you guys go and study what the Bible says? It's kind of a, a biting comment. And he says, why don't you go and restudy that passage about I, uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, uh, that word mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, in the Old Testament, that word mercy is the word kesed. Uh, it's translated either as mercy, sometimes it's translated as loving kindness, sometimes it's translated as the kindness. Um, there's three or four different words for love in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the one that refers to God's covenantial type of love, uh, where God is committed to you. In other words, it's a love that says, I love you no matter what. Even if you fail, even if you're unloving towards me, even if you do that which is unrespectable, even which is if you do things that are betraying of my love, even if you run from me, even if you call me names, I just want you to know, because of my commitment to you, because of my covenantial love commitment to you, I will never stop loving you. That's Kessid love. And so oftentimes it's referred to as God's mercy because it's in a relationship where somebody has done something so hurtful and so painful, but this person continues to love them because of their commitment to them. That's why it's often called, referred to as mercy, because it's, it's a love that just continually gives mercy, continually gives grace. Uh, it's also translated as loving kindness, because there's a kindness that's shown there. In the same way, Psalm 103, it says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. It's a kindness that just continues and continues and continues. And what Jesus is saying here is, is you need to go back and look at the way you have a relationship with God isn't because you've sacrificially done enough for God to accept you. It isn't because you've made sacrifice after sacrifice and you've you know, sacrificed of your time and sacrificed of your moral desires and you've sacrificed actual sacrifices and offerings up to God. Rather, the reason why you have a relationship with God in the first place is because of God's loving kindness towards you. Because he has made a commitment to you, he will never give up on you. When Abraham and God uh, make that covenant back in, in Genesis 15, it's God who passes through. Remember, they, when, they would, when, God would, when people would make a covenant, they would take an animal, they'd cut it in half, and the idea was they'd walk between the two pieces of the animals, and the idea would be, if you break this promise, you're going to end up like this animal here. A very graphic picture of what can happen to you, right? When God makes that covenant with humanity in Genesis 15, God's the one who passes through, not Abraham. Usually the stronger wouldn't pass and the weaker would. Like if I was the conquering king and I'd conquered you, I'd make you walk through there and go, you don't do what you say you're going to do, this is what's going to happen to you. Can you picture a king doing that, right? Well, the God of the universe makes this promise to Abraham and says, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, this is what's going to happen to me. That was the covenant God made. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'll be the one who ultimately gives my life 
for you if you fail in this. And so he says, you need to go back and look at how the nature of God's relationship with us was on God's kessed love for us. That was the foundation of it, not the sacrifice. The sacrifice was to illustrate how important it is so that we keep it. We would offer, offer a sacrifice like that bull to say, this is what should have happened. I should, I should look like this bull, but God, I sacrifice this up to you because you've spared me and you've not allowed this to happen to me. Now, we looked in our last series that God loves us, and what does Jesus say our response should be? That we would then, in turn, love God and love others as we love ourselves. And he would say to his disciples, love one another just as I have loved you. And what he's saying to these religious leaders is what God's desire is that you would understand the loving nature of his relationship with you. And in turn, you would love him and love others in the same way. And if you understood that that's the only way that you can have a relationship with God is because of his grace and mercy over you, that you didn't earn it, then you would understand that these people here could also receive the same kind of grace and mercy you've received. And if you had that kind of love from God and you love God with that same kind of love back, you would love people like these tax collectors and sinners in this room. And your heart would break for the decisions that they're making and for the place that they're in and what led them to this place in life and why they're thinking like this. And you'd be moved with compassion for them and not standing outside critically judging them. And then he goes on to say, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Uh, years ago, our theme for Christmas was, I am the reason for the season. About a lot of people have these shirts that say, Jesus is the reason for the season, and you know, put Christ back in Christmas, that kind of theme. And I just always would come back and say, you know, if you look at the scriptures, Jesus says again and again and again, you're the reason I came. You know, Paul would say this is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. That's why he came. That's why Christmas happened. I'm the reason for the season. If, I, if, if you and I didn't have a, sin, have, have a sin issue, he never would have had to come. He just would have hung out in heaven. We would live out our life here. Then we'd go up there and meet him. The reason why he came was because of our sin problem. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, and he's saying, they're the reason I'm here. For God so loved the world... Sinners like this, that his one and only son, which is Jesus, came into the world. That whoever believes in him, we looked in our last year, that word believe is this, this word that talks about a, a loving, committed relationship in the same way we talked about trust in the forms of a loving, committed relationship and how marriages and uh, deep relationships are foundationally built on trust. It's a love that is, connotates the idea of trust. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about here, that whoever believes in him has a loving, committed trust in him would not perish but live ever, would have an everlasting life. We sort of summarize that all by saying this one thing. This life's about nothing more than a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. He's saying, that's why I've come, to have a loving relationship regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, because of my covered lo- co- uh, kessed love for you, because of my mercy, my loving kindness for you. That's what you know, we talk about all from the Old Testament. I desire mercy, that kessed love from you. That's what I want to have a relationship with you. That's why I came. That's why I came. That's what Christmas is all about. The story of Christmas is about God coming for the sinners, about God leaving the 99 for the one, about coming to those who would never come to him, drawing near to those who would never draw near to him. You know, the, the, the one that God is coming for is the prodigal son. The one that God is coming for, you look through the, through the scriptures, it's the worst of all sinners. It's the last person you expect at church. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners. Tax collectors like Matthew, Matthew's friends, Zacchaeus. Now, the thing is, the thinking in their day 
was that God only loves those who are worthy of love. And you would think that the story of Christmas, because it's been told for so long, it's been 2,000 years now, that we would have corrected the error of thinking that God just loves those who are lovable. We'd think we would have corrected that error by now. However, we haven't. And those same themes still come out even at Christmas. Have you gone back and re-watched the Rudolph movie? Anybody watch it recently? Santa's kind of a curmudgeon grouch, honestly. I'm serious, he is. Go back and rewatch it. Rudolph has just been born. He's got the nose issue. Santa comes in and says, he better fix that if he wants to make the sleigh team. I mean, just picture somebody coming in. You invite him to the hospital, see your baby there, and they're like, ah, head's kind of flat. Better get that fixed if he ever wants to come to our church. I mean, really, you'd kick him out, right? Later on, Rudolph grows up a little bit more, and Rudolph's, you know, flying all around. Santa comes over to see him, and all of a sudden his nose goes off. And here he is. He's like a teenager. Santa comes in and, and says, uh, Actually, better yet, he goes to Donner, his dad, and he says, you should be ashamed of yourself having a son like that. Right in front of the kid. Nice, huh? Later on, the elves are all singing, you know, how great it is and how happy they are to be Santa's worker elves. The song ends, and it's like, so what'd you think, Santa? He goes, needs work. I gotta go. Storms off and slams the door. And because of his attitude, now the head elf is all going off on all the younger elves. Of course, he doesn't want to be any part of that. It all flows down from the top leadership. What I'm getting at is, even though the message of Christmas we read about in the Scriptures is God loves you as you are. He loves you regardless of where you are or where you've been we still even have corrupted the ID even at Christmas with this picture of the Santa figure. He's making a list, checking it twice. He's going to figure out who's naughty or nice. And if you're good, I'll reward you. And if you're not, it's a lump of coal for you. And Matthew is trying to set the record straight. If that's who God was, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be writing this. The redeeming part, of course, of the Rudolph movie, is not Santa's character, but rather it's in the end, what's he do? He shows love to the misfits, and the misfits find a place. And part of that's because they're utilitarily and useful to him, right? They take care of the abominable snowman for him, fix everybody who's got a toothache. Uh, Rudolph, all of a sudden, his nose, it was a liability and made him an outcast, now all of a sudden has a benefit. So there's still a little bit of that kind of issue uh, where it's not quite unmerited grace. And Matthew's saying, I want to set the record straight. This is what Christmas is really all about. It's about one who would come into the world for a guy like me. And not just that a guy like me could be forgiven, but that I'd be the one writing the Christmas story to you. I'd be elevated to the status and to the place of apostle. And it would be too hard to believe if you didn't know the background of the story of who Jesus was and where he found me when I met him. And I watched Jesus love the unlovable. I watched him touch lepers, and nobody went over and even talked to a leper, and he went over and he touched him, and he showed compassion. It was probably the first hug those guys had gotten in years. I watched him 
meet with the, this woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman, and nobody would talk to a Samaritan woman. It was a racial divide, and nobody would cross that racial divide, yet Jesus did. There's a woman who was caught in adultery and bragged out, dragged out in front of him, and he gets the whole crowd to leave, and he loves on her. He just says, I don't condemn you either. Just go leave your life of sin. And Matthew's like, after I watched all of that, I want you desperately to know who Jesus was and what the meaning of Christmas is. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've become, you fit. You have a place for him. You have a place with him. The whole story of the island of misfit toys is they're hoping that somewhere on earth there'd be a child who would love a misfit toy. And the reality behind that is there is a God who loves each and every one of you, and none of you is a misfit to him. That's not a label he would use. In him, you would just limp to look to him and say, this is where I fit with the one who created me and the one who made me. We join us as we close our time in prayer. Father, as we reflect on Christmas, every one of us in this room can think about where it is that we feel like we're a misfit. Where we felt like as if we don't fit in. Whether it be with people we work with, people we went to school with, We don't fit economically or racially or socially. And worst of all, Father, we feel like as if we don't fit spiritually before you. And yet here's this gospel that's written by Matthew. The worst of all sinners in his day. But the testimony about Jesus' love. And a reminder that this really happened. This is what is real. No need to suspend belief rather embrace the truth of the belief. So maybe we'd be so moved to accept Christmas and the reality of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.